I'm Apollo 16 astronaut Charlie Duke, the 10th man to walk on the moon. And you got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. This is the Space Show, Australia, on 88.3 Southern FM. Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I am Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, our reporter at the Kennedy Space Centre tells us why the maiden launch of the Space Launch System rocket has been postponed yet again. And before Angelo, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson has a few words to say. And later, we go to the Moon Village Association at Federation Square, right here in Melbourne, to hear some more things about living on the moon. So let's uh, head off then with our episode on Artemis One. Let's take a trip to the moon. Come on, let's go for the moon. I want to go to the moon. Let's take a trip to the moon. As you've no doubt heard already, rather disappointing time at the Kennedy Space Centre when for the second time they had to call off the launch of the Space Launch System rocket for the Artemis One mission to the moon. Well, here is how the NASA commentary began. I'm NASA commentator Daryl Nail. And I'm coming to you live from inside firing room one at the historic Launch Control Center, where Apollo and the space shuttle were launched. We also have close to 91 launch system engineers here with Exploration Ground Systems. They are currently configuring the Space Launch System and Ryan spacecraft for a flight test around the moon. And they are led by Launch Director Charlie Blackwell Thompson today, NASA's first female launch director. Six hours later, we heard this. This is Artemis Launch Control. The launch director waved off today's uh, attempt at launching at approximately 11.17 a.m. Eastern Time. The launch team ran into a liquid hydrogen leak while loading propellant into the core stage of the Space Launch System rocket. There were multiple troubleshooting uh, efforts that were made to try to get uh, the leak to stop and reseal the connection. In the quick, from the quick disconnect of the liquid hydrogen line. This is where the liquid hydrogen is fed into the rocket. Uh, unfortunately, those attempts to troubleshoot it did not succeed. Engineers are uh, still continuing to gather data, but also deconfiguring the rocket and detanking at this moment the liquid oxygen tank. It's currently down to 90% filled due to the aft strut constraint. They're going to drain that tank first while the core stage liquid hydrogen tank is held at its current level of 11%. The aft 
aft strut constraint requires the team to have at least 50% filled liquid oxygen to over 5% liquid hydrogen. This is Artemis Launch Control. And then in the wee hours of Sunday morning, Melbourne time, Administrator Bill Nelson had these comments to make about why the second scrub had happened. I'm with NASA Administrator Bill Nelson following the scrubbed attempt of the second launch attempt of the uh, Artemis 1 mission, the Space Launch System and Orion spacecraft. Good to have you back, Administrator. Um, unfortunately, not the result we were looking for today either. want to get your thoughts and your reaction. We'll go when it's ready. Uh, we don't uh, go until then, and especially now on a test flight because we're going to stress this and test it uh, and test that heat shield uh, and make sure it's right before we put four humans up on the top of it. Uh, so this is part of the space business. I, I've told you before, you know, it's, it's something I'm accustomed to on my flight which was Hoot Gibson and Charlie uh, Bolden's flight way, way, way back, uh, we scrubbed four times. Mm -hmm. We were delayed over the better part of a month, but the fifth try was an almost flawless six-day mission. So um, this is part of our space program. Be ready for the scrubs. Space is hard indeed. Um, the question now on everybody's mind is going to be, when will we have another launch attempt? Any thoughts on that? Well, the mission management team is meeting this afternoon. They're going to look at it. They're going to see is there still a possibility now or are they going to have to roll back into the vehicle assembly building. If they decide that's the case, then it'll be an October launch. And uh, October, I would say, although the window opens in early, I suspect it'll be more like the middle. Because remember, the first week of October, we've got another crew. Mm -hmm. It's an international crew. Two international participants on the crew of four that are going to the International Space Station. That's right. SpaceX is uh, Crew 5, NASA and SpaceX's Crew 5 mission scheduled for early uh, October. Um, you mentioned the MMT, of course, the mission management team. They're going to meet this afternoon, and then hopefully we'll have a press conference after that. Um, I've been watching this launch team for the past two weeks now and just impressed at how focused and how hard they work. Any thoughts you want to share? with them about uh, the effort they put in so far? I'm very proud of the launch team. Uh, they do it right. They do it by the book. Uh, they do it very professionally. And that's why we have had this extraordinary success that we've had over the years. Uh, sometimes we make mistakes, but we try to minimize those because these are human being li uh, lives on the top of that rocket. And I can tell you, when you strap into that rocket, you are very grateful that you've got a, a launch team like this uh, that knows what they're doing and they're not going to let you go until it's time. Well, this is The Space Show, and we now have... Angelo de Grazio, a member of the Space Association of Australia. And Angelo, could you tell us where you are at the moment? Okay, how are you, uh, Andrew? Uh, good to be here. I, uh, I'm currently in Titusville. I'm in uh, a little unit not uh, far from uh, uh, 
the Kennedy Space Centre, and uh, uh, really, I've just woken up in the wee hours of the morning to make this call to uh, to you and the listeners. Yes, yeah, so at five o'clock in the morning. Uh, something like that, yeah. <laughs> okay, Angelo. Uh, could you tell us what the SLS is? Yes, I can. The SLS is part of the Artemis One project of, or um, part of the Artemis program. It's the core vehicle that actually uh, lost the Orion capsule, which is the component that uh, has the astronauts in it, uh, that basically uh, launches uh, is the rocket that launches the Orion to the moon. So Artemis is the moon Mars initiative of uh, NASA, and the SLS, which stands for the Space Launch System, uh, is the core booster that uh, does the launching. It's derived from space shuttle components. It has its history that goes back to... Um, the early 2000s, under George W. Bush, uh, the Constellation program was envisaged uh, to be a, a, a monster rocket, even bigger than the one that uh, we've currently got, that was to get America back to the moon. But by uh, 2010, it became obvious that there were a number of technical problems, but more importantly, the Constellation program ran uh, over cost and... Uh, uh, President Obama at the time then cancelled it in favour of commercial crew. However, uh, the number of congressmen uh, and lawmakers in America uh, couldn't uh, really put all its eggs in one basket, i.e. commercial space, and decided that uh, it would basically tell NASA to build this new rocket that was uh, made out of shuttle-derived parts, uh, and it was basically... Uh, on same cost plus type contracts going to the same contractors. Uh, unfortunately, that um, that resulted in what we now see as the space launch system. Uh, I hope that gives a little bit of background, Andrew. So it looks like the uh, acronym SLS <laughs> might well stand for the Senate launch system. Well, look, the idea... Uh, was uh, that it would be a backup to commercial space because in those early days, uh, no one really knew commercial space was going to succeed. But also, you know, people have criticised it for being job for the boys. Um, now, you know, it's the old, the old problem, you know. Yes, it costs a lot of money and they spend billions of dollars. Uh, like I heard an estimate yesterday that the whole SLS system up until 2025 is going to cost something like about $95 billion, which is a staggering, you know, eye-watering amount. However, you know, where is the money spent? The money is spent here in America. It's spent on people, and people, you know, have families and have... Uh, and the money goes into the economy. So, you know, it was, a, it was a, a way that the government gets money into the economy. So you can't begrudge the Americans for that. But nevertheless... NASA only gets a 20, $26 billion budget per year, so something that's very expensive becomes very unsustainable. Now, many people are, are familiar with the uh, Guy Fawkes rockets or the ones we see on New Year's Eve, which are 
powered by gunpowder. What fuel and what oxidizer does the space launch system use? Okay, the space launch system, as I've said, is a derivative of the space shuttle, and the and they use liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, and uh, now that is part of the problems that we were encountered in the last two launch attempts uh, that we saw. So um, hydrogen being the lightest element uh, in the world, uh, it just has to find a very small crack and it will leak. Uh, We saw it in the shuttle and we have now seen it uh, quite dramatically in the SLS launch attempts. Because they've been using hydrogen and rockets ever since the Centaur in 1960. Yes, they have. And, and, and interestingly enough, if you go back, you'll find that they've had problems ever since the 1960s. Uh, it's part of the reason why people like Elon Musk um, you know, have decided that they're going to move to methane because uh, liquid hydrogen is a problem because it has to be chilled to such low temperatures it has to be stored it is susceptible to leaking because it is a very small molecule in hydrogen and you know modern rockets tend to stay away from these liquid cryogenic type fuels even though in a specific impulse aspect hydrogen is the most efficient of fuels it is that's on the plus side on the negative side there's many more concerns with it so uh, that's the problem with hydrogen so so what exactly went wrong on the first launch attempt on monday a week ago uh, as you know andrew i was uh, there at the media center and uh, we were watching this uh, blow by blow very early in the morning i think we left um i left home about midnight uh, for an eight o'clock in the morning launch Eight thirty, i think the window opened for a two-hour window and um we got there and uh, things uh, were going okay in the early parts of the morning, but then uh, as they started to fill the rocket, um, there were some anomalies. I, there was uh, some small hydrogen leaks. So that was the first thing. But there were other things that were also uh, of concern, like there was some uh, insulation in the upper part of the, the rocket and they didn't know whether they had a crack in the in the uh, shell or they had a uh, uh, some just ice forming into the crack. It turns out that they, they were insignificant. Um, and uh, another problem then cropped up um, where what they do is they do a chill down of the engines. They condition them before they, you know, ignite them. So they run liquid through them, liquid hydrogen through them, and that chills them down. And what they found was that on one of the engines, engine three, it had not chilled down sufficiently uh, to allow them to launch. Uh, Now, uh, at the end, uh, with about 40 minutes to spare before uh, launch, they decided to pull the pin on the the launch scrub because engine three uh, hadn't reached the temperature. Now, they were running behind... In the uh, in the launch window because there was some lightning in the morning and that meant that they couldn't start fueling till later in the morning, which meant that they were eating into their into their uh, launch window. 
So by the time they got this problem with the engine chill, number three, they'd really run out of launch window and they then decided to... Charlie, who's the, uh, uh, the the female director now, launch director, made the call to scrub for the day. So that was a disappointment for everyone. But, uh, you know, the old adage, uh, rather be safe than sorry. That problem, incidentally, smelt to me at the time of a sensor. And it wasn't until later that uh, I think NASA really started to focus that, uh, yes, there is potentially a sensor problem because they had other indicators that the pressure was okay, um, the flow rates were okay, it was just that the temperature was reading uh, uh, as an anomaly. Um, so they then decided to... Um, basically restructure its procedures uh, so that when they had another launch attempt, they could work around it and, um, uh, you know, maybe ignore that sensor. They can't access that rocket on the pad. It's not like uh, the good old shuttle days or the Apollo days where you had a uh, service structure that you could just roll in and, uh, you know, get into the rocket and do things. On this particular rocket, uh, I suspect probably to do with cost. Um, you really can't access this thing on the pad, and it makes it really, really difficult to fix things like sensors and other things. Now, even if you did access it on the pad, you might still have difficulty depending where the sensor is. But uh, that was the problem on the first launch attempt. So that was the scrub for the day. You must have been pretty disappointed then. Yeah. <laughs> I was, you know, travelling, you know, the the, uh, you know, uh, from uh, all that way from uh, Melbourne, Australia, to uh, the other side of the world, uh, might as well might as well have been to the moon. To watch it scrub was disappointing, but you know, you, you've got to accept these things. And uh, I had planned my trip so that I could uh, cover the whole launch window. And as you know, the launch window went from the 29th of August all the way to the 5th. Of September, so I thought. Well, you've got three launch attempts and a few sub attempts in between that you can uh, uh, achieve a, a successful mission. You know, we should be able to go on one of those. That was my thinking, and uh, it turned out that I was wrong. <laughs> well, where to from here for the space launch system? Oh, I should I should mention what happened on the second launch attempt. Uh, sorry, Andrew. Very quickly, the second launch attempt occurred. Uh, they, they had another go a few days later. This time, um, they had a leak, um, a significant leak in the hydrogen. And uh, it started off as a minor leak. And they went into manual fill, it's called, because normally these things are all automated. But uh, if the automation still doesn't solve the problem, they go to manual. So they tried the manual fill and... Uh, and here's my suspicion. Um, when they did this, someone must have pressed uh, the wrong button. Uh, and essentially, uh, one of the events was an over-pressurisation of the quick disconnect system that filled the rocket. And after that, all their attempts to seal the hydrogen leak uh, really failed. And, you know, two hours before launch, uh, again, Charlie uh, made the call to scrub the launch and the decision on that day was 
let's decide what we're going to do, which leads us into where to from here. And at the moment, as, as I'm standing here, the decision is that they're going to try to fix the quick disconnect and the seal uh, fueling uh, the rocket on the pad. Now, it's complicated because you've got to get access to it. You've got to build a little structure around uh, the quick disconnect system so that you don't have any uh, environmental, uh, outside environmental impacts like, uh, you know, a lot of salty uh, air that uh, is around Kennedy Space Centre and, uh, and things like rain and thunder and all the rest of it. Uh, now, why are they doing this? The reason is that they can first diagnose what went wrong because they can pull the quick disconnect slowly and then assess uh, what uh, uh, rubber seals uh, that they have and other sealing devices to, to see what actually uh, has gone wrong. And the other reason is that once they fix it, they can do a full cryogenic test of that component. In other words, fill up the hydrogen tank with maybe 10% hydrogen and then test the seal, you know, work it through its paces. These leaks on quick dis disconnect, when you're dealing with hydrogen, are not uncommon. Happened a number of times on shuttle, and a number of times shuttle had to go back to the vertical assembly building uh, for repairs. But uh, on this instance, I'll fix that. However, here's, here's the uh, cruncher. They'll be able to test it on the pad, but they won't be able to fire it. And the reason why they won't be able to fire it is because of what's called the flight termination system. What the flight termination system is, it's basically a high explosive in the rocket that should it veer off course, they press a button and the rocket blows up. But it relies on batteries. Now, in order to get this launch window in, uh, NASA had to convince the Space Force, who are in control of safety at the Kennedy Space Centre, um, that the 20-day limit approval should be extended to 25. They gave that to NASA. However, the flight termination, it is very unlikely that they will get an extension to maybe 35, 40 days. So, and the reason for that is the batteries. They need to uh, qualify that the batteries are of sufficient power and strength and charge to blow up the uh, rocket in case of an emergency. So, in order to do that, option A is to convince Space Force. It is pretty unlikely they'll get an extension. Option B is you roll it back to the VAV, vertical assembly building, and you recertify that system. And that is what they're going to have to do. As soon as they do that, it's going to take um, considerable time. There are two launch windows coming up, late September, and uh, then there is the early October and late October timeframe. Early uh, late September they can't do; they just won't have the time for it to roll back, fix all the problems, and come back. And the early October they can't do because they've got uh, crew to uh, space station going up, uh, so there is a conflict of uh, of uh, schedule. So the most likely is going to be later in October. And that's my bet when they'll roll out from the VAB. But once they got in the VAB, they can fix up a few things as well and just make sure everything is uh, as good as they can get it. On the Space Show, we're talking with Angelo de Grazia, 
for the uh, Space Association of Australia. He is at the Kennedy Space Centre, <laughs> rather disappointed at the moment. Um, well, Angelo, now that you've actually seen the SLS, what are your impressions? Well, you know, I'm um, I'm a rocket man from um, from the '60s, and um, looking at any rocket is always impressive. But this is doubly impressive. Um, it is a big rocket. Uh, it, it's got that same orange glow that the uh, space shuttle had, and it's got these mighty solid rocket boosters attached to it, and it's got that really nice. Um, little top that you know curved top uh, that you see on the rocket which actually protects the Orion capsule during uh, atmospheric launch it's pretty impressive I I befriended a guy who was organizing uh, the media to go out to the pads every day to check their cameras and all the rest of it and I was lucky enough to get a ride not to the launch pad but certainly around it and um, uh, it was uh, it was awesome. Uh, the big impression for me though was the heat. <laughs> the heat out here. It, I mean, it's midsummer and it's very oppressive and extremely humid. It's uh, you know it's cans on a bad day. Um, uh, but uh, so the impressions of seeing our rocket, which are just awesome, uh, and the heat uh, really. Uh, have a, a kind of a conflicting uh, impression of uh, of, uh, of my trip to uh, the space coast. Now, a little birdie whispered in my ear and told me that you had a brief chat with NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. Well, I uh, not only uh, is had a little chat, but I've actually uh, got proof of that encounter in a picture that... Uh, <laughs> that uh, I'll be presenting when I do my report to the Space Association meeting uh, in September. So, uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting encounter because Bill Nelson occasionally would wander into the media centre and, you know, uh, sometimes there's a lot of media people in the room and sometimes there's not many. So you know, on this occasion, there wasn't that many. And he was talking and I'm hanging on the, uh, on the edge there and he looks at me and he says, well, how are you? And so... I said, yeah, I'm good, you know, with the clearly the Australian accent, which uh, uh, clearly got his attention. So we had a little chat, and um, he we moved across, and we took some pictures and all uh, all that sort of stuff, and it was, uh, you know, quite a thrill. I mean, Bill Nelson is the consummate politician. Um, he um, he was the one that was responsible, actually, him and another another congresswoman. Uh, back in 2010, that uh, mandated the NASA to build the SLS. So that was that was a thrill. That was a thrill. Well, Angelo, thank you very much for joining us on the Space Show. Yeah, my my pleasure, Andrew. And uh, uh, unfortunately, I won't be here in October, but we'll certainly uh, be watching it keenly on the uh, on the TV. And hope this time it's a success, and they're off to the moon. Okay, and I believe you're off to Boca Chica. Yes, uh, on Thursday morning, uh, American time, I'm heading off to Houston. I'll spend a little bit of time in Houston, catch up with uh, a few people that I know there, and uh, then I'll do the five-and-a-half-hour drive down to Boca Chica, uh, do the half-an-hour trip around the publicly accessible roads, 
but with a bit of luck, I'm, uh, I'll get a few pictures of the rocket garden and then I'll drive towards the beach and I'll get some pictures of the uh, launch centre, uh, sorry, the launch complex. I'm hoping that Elon, during the next three days, doesn't blow up uh, either the booster or Starship, but uh, I know that they are testing it. They're, they're doing spin tests and, uh, you know, some uh, hot fire tests as well. Um, and uh, so I'm really looking forward to that because uh, apparently, you know, when you see this rocket, it's something that's really out of this world, <laughs> literally. So that'll be good. Yeah, and then I head back to Melbourne. Right. Well, we look forward to uh, more of your reports. Thank you, Angelo. It's Angelo de Grazia from the Space Association of Australia. Southern FM. The sounds of the Bayside. Come and take a trip in my rocket ship. We'll have a lovely afternoon. Kiss the world goodbye and away we fly. Destination moon. Travel fast as light till we're lost from sight. The earth is like a toy balloon. Well, the topic is still the moon here on the space show on Southern FM. We're going to go to Federation Square, where some time ago the Moon Village Association held a uh, one-day conference, and one of the speakers there was Quinlan Buchlach. He is a data scientist in space medicine, and well, <laughs> why am I introducing it? Because Mark Toblum is going to do the same, so let's go to Federation Square. So I'd like to introduce our final speaker. Quinn is a data scientist, technologist, and clinical researcher. He's worked as a scientist for the European Space Agency and has only recently returned from the European Astronaut Center in Cologne, Germany. His space medicine research includes investigating hypergravity-related physiology um, to inform the development of effective countermeasures to maintain the health of future astronauts on long-duration deep space missions to the Moon and to Mars. He has 10 years of experience working as a management consultant across healthcare, health services, aerospace, and nonprofit sectors. He holds a master's in organizational psychology, a master's in information systems, and is currently completing a medical doctorate. He's also authored 20 medical research papers. His presentation today is titled A Field Guide to Exploring the Moon as a Deep Space Astronaut and is intended to give you a feel for what it might be like for one of humanity's next great envoys as we forge deep into the solar system, take our next tentative steps on the surface of another planet, and see a, new, see an Earth, a lunar-based Earth rise again for the first time in half a century. Uh, one of those next envoys of humanity could be one of yourselves. Good afternoon, team. Congratulations on getting through astronaut selection. You're an astronaut and you're going to the moon. No one's been up there for about 50 years, and a lot has changed. It's going to be a far cry from the bouncing spacemen of Apollo, so listen carefully. Welcome to your first field training briefing. The intent is to talk about your upcoming moon mission and the technology that's being developed to keep you safe. So you all know this place well. This is the European Space Agency's European Astronaut Centre in Cologne, Germany, and you'll spend two years here training prior to your first mission. 
There are thousands of people all over the world developing powerful new technologies to keep you safe on your moon exploration operations. When the time comes, you'll be assigned a flight and you'll ride a column of fire blazing a hole in the sky. It'll be everything you've ever dreamed of and more. After minutes of intense roaring and vibrations and G-force is so strong it feels like a gorilla is sitting on your chest, this is the view you'll see out the window. You'll experience microgravity for the first time and you'll spend a while preparing for transfer to the moon. When the time's right, you'll fire the boosters and you'll be away. This is your spacecraft. This is your life support, the Orion. It'll take about a week to get there, a week of confinement, a week of isolation, a week of stiff and sore legs, but also a week of wonder, a week of learning to fly in microgravity, and a week of journeying into the blackness to a bright orb in the distance. Radiation, as we've heard, is one of the most significant problems faced by deep space astronauts. And there are a series of strategies and tactics being developed to, to mitigate its risks. Uh, things from building hard shielding into spacesuits uh, to building shielding into spacecraft, using water as a radiation shield in spacecraft, uh, and also biosciences approaches, uh, uh, strategies to reduce the likelihood of DNA damage as a result of radiation, and strategies to uh, optimize DNA repair. When you get there, this will be a new home. This is NASA's Lunar Gateway. It's no mansion, but it's got everything you'll need uh, to have a successful 12-month mission. You'll be exposed to microgravity the entire time you're there in orbit around the moon on, on the gateway. Uh, your musculoskeletal system will slowly start dissolving because it's no longer needed to work against Earth's gravity. Uh, the fluid will shift towards your head and uh, your cardiovascular system will start to change. Your vision will also start to change over time. So to mitigate the effects of these issues and to keep you healthy, to keep you functioning, you're going to have to work out for hours every day. This is uh, a resistance exercise device that operates to simulate weightlifting by pulling against the force of vacuum tubes. Your spine also degrades uh, when it's exposed to microgravity as well. Uh, and this is a device developed by uh, the European Space Agency called the skin suit. Uh, your spine loses bone density, and uh, as it degrades, it increases the risk of vertebral fracture and intervertebral disc herniation, particularly as we heard when you land. Uh, so this suit exerts longitudinal pressure down the uh, length of your spine to keep it loaded and to keep it healthy. You'll be wearing this a lot on your mission uh, in the Lunar Gateway. You'll also have AI assistance to monitor your health, your diet, and your work, and to provide you with recommendations uh, to, to optimize your performance. You'll start your work by operating robotic systems on the surface of the moon, investigating uh, areas of interest and collecting important data uh, from the safety of the Lunar Gateway. This is one of the robotic systems developed by the European Space Agency for that purpose. Okay, so you and the person next to you have been assigned as EVA partners. EVA stands for extravehicular activity and describes uh, the, the uh, activity of walking on the surface of the moon. So one of you is call sign Pegasus, the other is call sign Eagle. Get to know each other well, your survival and the success of the mission will depend on it. 
So when the time is right, you'll enter the transfer vehicle and you'll make your way down to the surface for the first time. It's an exciting environment. Uh, the level of gravity on the moon is 16% that of, of, of the Earth's gravity. It's a place where you can jump about a story high. You can easily do a double backflip from standing. And physiology research actually suggests that humans can run on liquid water in moon's gravity. But it's also hostile. There's nothing out there but you, your colleagues, the robots, radiation, and moon dust. Not even a skerrick of oxygen for comfort. Your mission will be to conduct experiments, to explore the surface, to liaise with scientists and mission controllers on the Lunar Gateway and back on Earth. You'll also start the process of constructing infrastructure on the surface of the moon. Because the plan is to transition from the Lunar Gateway to a permanent installation on the moon's surface, and you will begin constructing it. You'll also start work on in-situ resource utilization uh, infrastructure to uh, gather resources that can be used for um, life support, fuel, and uh, construction materials. This is what one of the HABs might look like. You can see the pressurized area where astronauts live. You can see the technical support module, the airlock, and the 3D printed wall that will protect you from radiation. People are looking into how to 3D print that protective shell out of moon dust or regolith. People are also looking into how to uh, apply augmented reality and virtual reality systems uh, to optimize the interior of that environment, to reduce the effects of isolation on astronauts, and to uh, maximize psychological well-being. You'll also be working in a team to explore uh, geological features, areas of interest, and cave systems. And in the course of your work, in, in the course of exploring the surface, constructing infrastructure, and exploring uh, geological features, you're going to have to look after each other. So what happens, Pegasus, when Eagle trips on a moon rock, falls into a crater, and breaks a leg? Well, you can't just pick them up and drag them because uh, your, your spacesuit is too limiting. You can't move appropriately. You can't affect that kind of rescue. So this is a system developed by the European Space Agency uh, to mobilize uh, an incapacitated astronaut and put them on a mobile platform for transport. So, Pegasus, you're on this platform now, and Eagle is dragging you to the transfer vehicle, and you're going to be safe. Once you get back to the transfer vehicle and back up onto the Lunar Gateway, you'll use a system like this. This is the Tempest Pro, developed by the European Space Agency and Remote Diagnostic Technologies in the UK. It's a system that incorporates technologies like ultrasound to do an initial survey and to facilitate medical management planning in the emergency environment. But Pegasus, you've rescued uh, Eagle. But in your haste to get back to the Lunar Gateway, some regolith has uh, uh, come in through the airlock and uh, it permeates the environment inside, inside the, uh, the gateway. And some of it's gotten into your eyes. As we saw, it's sharp. It's like shattered glass and it's scratching the surface of your eyeballs. But you can't just wash it out. Water behaves in unpredictable ways in microgravity, and it's a precious resource. So you're going to have to use a closed-loop system like this to wash your eyes out. This is developed by NASA and ESA. And Eagle, what if you get a toothache? Well, Pegasus, you're going to have to manage it. Like I said, get to know each other well. NASA and ESA are also developing 3D printing technologies to print uh, surgical tools, to print uh, organs and, and bone uh, to solve medical problems on deep space exploration missions, but these things are still in development. 
So after 12 months, you will detach from the Lunar Gateway, you'll be in your Orion, and you'll take one last look at the barren wild landscape of the moon as it recedes into the distance. You'll have a little bit of time to enjoy your last moments of microgravity in orbit around the Earth as you prepare for re-entry. And then Orion will detach from the space station and make its fiery way back down to Earth. You'll be traveling at over 20,000 kilometers an hour, and you'll be enveloped in a cocoon of blazing plasma that ranges from bright white to orange to purple to cherry red. And then boom, splash down, you've made it home, you're safe. You'll be transferred back to the European uh, Astronaut Center in Cologne, where the medical team will make sure that your recovery is a good one. For your first days and weeks back on Earth, it'll take a while for you to adjust to, to gravity. You'll feel pale, you'll feel weak, uh, you'll feel unsteady, and you won't be able to function properly, but that won't matter to you. Because you, Team Pegasus and Eagle, have inspired millions. You've made discoveries that will shape the future of humanity. And you've encouraged and paved the way for the bravest among us to continue forging deeper and further into the solar system in the name of exploration and discovery. Now, get to work. You've got a moon to explore. Thanks. At Deacon Edge at Federation Square, that was Quinlan Buchlack, a data scientist in space medicine, taking us on a virtual trip to the moon. This is The Space Show. 88.3 Southern FM. On air and online via the free Community Radio Plus app. Download it now from the App Store or Google Play. Now, you may have seen an article in the newspaper about a device no bigger than a toaster has generated oxygen on the surface of Mars, bringing the chances of surviving on the red planet a step closer. Well, this instrument was the Mars Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilisation Experiment, which is better known as MOXIE. And it has uh, been on Mars as part of the Perseverance rover, which is in Jezero Crater. So it looks like, yes, we can generate oxygen when we go to Mars from the atmosphere of Mars. Well, while we're still at Mars, let's hear this item about the Curiosity. The Curiosity rover set out to answer a big question. Could Mars have supported ancient life? Now we know the answer, but there's still so much more to learn. To help NASA's Curiosity rover safely explore the surface of Mars, Engineers here on Earth use a nearly identical sibling named Maggie. This full-scale engineering model helps the team practice operations in the Mars Yard at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I'm Raquel Villanueva, here with Curiosity Deputy Project Scientist Abigail Freeman. Her team is celebrating their 10th year on the Red Planet. Where has the rover traveled to in the past decade? Well, we've spent the last basically 10 years Martian mountain climbing. Curiosity landed at the base of a big mountain named Mount Sharp that is made of layers of rocks. So we're climbing the mountain to give us a snapshot of Martian history. We've driven about 17 and a half miles, and more impressively, we've climbed over 2,000 feet in elevation up the mountain. We're all the way up in these hills now. It's pretty spectacular. With all that climbing, how is Curiosity doing? 
pretty good, actually. You know, all of our science instruments are working just about as good as they did when we landed. We have nearly our full capabilities. The arm and the drill and the rover, they're a little bit arthritic. So we have to be a little bit gentle when we use them. And our wheels are a little bit beat up. The wheels on Maggie look great, but we have some, some test wheels that we've really destroyed. The wheels on the rover are somewhere between these two. You know, we just drilled our 35th sample the other week. So still doing amazing science. And how do you decide where the rover is going to go? Do you work with other NASA missions? You know, the data from the Mars orbiters have been really helpful. The spectrometers, that's the kind of instrument on, on Odyssey and Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, have told us where the interesting minerals are and where the best places to go to look at changing environments are. And then in particular, the cameras on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, they're so good and they're so helpful at allowing us to find the safest way that we can climb this mountain. What would you say is the biggest discovery your team has made? You know, Curiosity was sent to Mars in order to answer a really big question. Did Mars have all of the ingredients that we know life needed? And 10 years later, not only have we given that answer a definitive yes, but we've also seen that those ingredients were around for tens of millions of years. And what's next for Curiosity? We can see from orbit that we're getting to a place in the mountain that likely records a pretty dramatic change in the sorts of environments that were around. You know, the lakes that once filled gales started to dry out and we're getting to that period in time. So we're really interested in answering how long did these habitable environments persist as Mars and Gale Crater went through these pretty big climate changes. I just can't wait to see what's next. We've seen hints that the rocks are going to be very different very soon. And so I'm really curious what we're going to find. It's, well, that is an exciting new chapter for you. And congratulations on 10 years. Thanks, Abigail. Thanks so much. To get the latest updates, follow at NASA JPL and at NASA Mars on social media, or take a deeper dive on the mission websites at mars.nasa.gov. And now we're going to the far side of the sun where the solar orbiter is working and has detected a violent storm that has come out of the moon, a coronal mass ejection. This is Richard Hollingham for ESA at the Royal Observatory of Belgium in Brussels. For more than a century, scientists have been making observations on this site using telescopes like this, still in use today. In fact, this is the world data center for the Sunspot Index. Now though, Solar Orbiter is giving us a whole new perspective of our nearest star. Solar Orbiter was launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida in February 2020. The spacecraft has since traveled some two and a half billion kilometers, made two passes of Venus to get a better view of the sun's poles and one pass of the Earth. Now it's just made its first close approach to the sun, taking it within the orbit of Mercury. During temperatures of some 500 degrees Celsius, the pictures Solar Orbiter's returning show this atomic furnace in unprecedented detail. I was personally blown away by the quality and degree of detail in these images. And clearly, as solar physicists, we've been looking at images of the sun for many years. But by going three times closer, we can get the spatial resolution up by a factor of three. And we see things that we haven't seen before. And that's, of course, the beauty of science to explore the unexplored. 
These new images were captured by a camera called the Extreme Ultraviolet Imager, led by the team based here in Brussels. It sometimes happens, I get into my office, I download the latest data and, and I stare for hours at it. It's so active, addictive actually. <laughs> the images show activity in the outer layers of the solar atmosphere and reveal a variety of features, including something scientists are nicknaming the hedgehog. It has a multitude of spikes of hot gas reaching out in all directions. Nobody has ever seen the details of the corona in, in that much detail before. So, so every time it's, we get an image down, it's the first time we see something at that scale. And, and that's really fascinating. It's really discovery space that we're entering. The Extreme Ultraviolet Imager is one of 10 science instruments on Solar Orbiter, now all working together for the first time. Some are looking at the sun, others are measuring the environment around the spacecraft. All this activity is being coordinated at the European Space Astronomy Centre in Madrid. It's important to have all the instruments working and operating in a coordinated way. Because one of the main goals of the mission is to link the sun and its activity with the environment. And not only the environment close by, but also the planets. And for that we want to uh, look at the sun's activity, at the solar activity, with many different telescopes that look at it in different wavelengths. So that means they are looking at different layers in the atmosphere and they can also measure things like the magnetic fields on the sun. The influence of solar activity, particularly on the Earth, is known as space weather. It includes the effects of the stream of charged particles the sun emits, the solar wind, and more dramatic events such as solar flares. So do you think that would be a good target for Solar Orbiter to point at this active region? As it happens, Solar Orbiter observed several flares and even a coronal mass ejection, all tracked from here in Belgium at ESA's Space Weather Coordination Centre. Solar Orbiter is basically a research mission, but ultimately we want to be able to predict space weather. These are energetic events that could have an impact on uh, high-tech installations on Earth, GPS satellites, power grids. And we want to make sure that in the future we can predict geomagnetic storms based on solar activity. And for that we really need to take the sun's temperature and measure the solar wind and connect the two. Scientists across Europe and ESA's partners around the world are now working to interpret the vast amount of information Solar Orbiter is sending back. And this is just the start of a mission that promises to transform our understanding of our nearest star. And we're just about fading away now is the Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie. This is the Space Show. Hopefully next week, more Space Show.